This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Uh, I want to remind listeners that if you like what we do here at the Vision Movement and at Vision Magazine, uh, you can support our work by going to visionmovement.org or visionmag.org and hitting the donate button on the menu bar up top. Please keep in mind that we're 100% listener funded and we don't want that to change. So your support is important and very much appreciated uh, in terms of the work that we do. And if you're currently unable to contribute to our work financially, uh, doing something as simple as sharing episodes of this podcast with your friends or leaving a positive review can be incredibly helpful in uh, allowing us to expand our reach. Now, this is probably the first time I can think of that I have invited a two-state Zionist onto the show. Samuel Hyde is a, a journalist, a columnist based in Tel Aviv. Uh, he frequently writes about Israel's political climate, anti-Semitism, our conflict with the Palestinians, and diaspora Jewish issues. He has worked for at least one of the, I don't want to name it, but at least one of the major Israel advocacy organizations uh, here in Israel, one of the major Hasbara organizations. Uh, and he self-identifies as a Zionist thinker and a vocal opponent uh, of both anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Samuel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Yehuda. Thanks very much for having me. One thing I will say mm. is I'm not a two-stater in the sense of the way you think. Mm. Uh, I'm not pro or one state, but I am open mm -hmm. to different developments through uh, the process of shrinking slash solving the conflict and moving forward mm -hmm. uh, as we as we develop. Okay, so we should talk about that. I, I just want to give full disclosure to our listeners. Uh, you and I met, we don't know each other that well, but uh, we met once about six months ago. You came up to my sukkah on the mountain here and we had a great conversation. And yes. uh, we've been trying to meet again since then and, and hopefully we'll make it work soon, Bezrat Hashem. But the, the reason I invited you on the show is because I saw uh, something you had posted, uh, which looked to me like you were pushing a two-state agenda from a Zionist perspective, uh, or maybe criticizing those who oppose the two-state solution, uh, Jews who oppose the two-state solution. And I, I think that's a conversation we should definitely get into. But before we do, I actually wanted to talk to you about this idea of being a Zionist thinker, because I'm a little curious to know what that means for you, how you define the word Zionist, because uh, often I think we get ourselves into trouble when we have these conversations without defining terms. And uh, on this show, we've talked about Zionism a lot, and you coming in as a self-defined Zionist thinker uh, might be helpful to define what that means to you. Sure. So, I mean, you know, as we know, Zionism branches out into many different spectrums. Mm -hmm. For me, I relate to Zionism as the national liberation movement for the Jewish people um, that uh, saw the establishment of the state of Israel and uh, essentially the decolonization of the land in 1948 um, in returning Jewish people to their ancestral homeland in well, some part of the ancestral homeland. Okay. That's pretty much where I stand on it. It's simple. I connect to it as a 
as a national emancipation movement okay. for the Jewish people. I, I think I would largely agree with most of what you just said. I, I might have a question on this word decolonization because I'm not sure. I would say we liberated our land from British rule in 1948, but I don't think we dismantled colonial structures. I wouldn't say we practiced decolonization uh, only because we kept a lot of the colonial structures of the British mandate intact. We just put a lot of Jewish decorations on them. And also we didn't really go through a post-colonial process ourselves, meaning the Jewish people as a collective, you know, once we achieved material liberation, once we achieved political independence, we didn't really go through what I would define as this like necessary process of really addressing our trauma, addressing our own colonization and trying to break that down, like have a national conversation over who we were, what happened to us, uh, what kind of society we want to create, what's the identity of that society, what should the values of that society be, how do we create policies and, and national structures that would manifest those values and that identity. I don't think we ever did that. And I think that's a core problem in Israeli society today, the fact that we never did that. So I, I wouldn't say we decolonized anything in 1948, but we definitely freed our land from British rule. I think that definitely happened. Yes. So, I mean, to define more in the sense of what, what I mean, as we said, we people connect to Zionism in different ways. The way I see Zionism uh, and this question of what is a Jewish state is a beautiful part, essentially, of what what constitutes the state in which we exist today. From you know the word go in the in the Zionist Congress, there was a debate around this topic, which continues in Israel today, and that's why you know while I understand what you're saying about keeping certain colonial structures in place, I also do at the same time think that uh, from the Zionist Congress to the establishment of the State of Israel, democracy essentially was a natural transg transgression because of the way the Zionist movement and the Zionist Congress operated with different views and different opinions. And I think that when Israel has actually been in fundamental disagreement in many in many cases in its democracies, when we see its democracy flourishing, when we've been in a broad scale agreement on certain things, we actually see a decline in that. And I think that it's very important, at least for me to note that from my experience and, and and research that I've been doing over the last couple of months into Israeli society, there's a broad spectrum of opinions here. And many of them are subset or fringe like in any society. And I still do think that democracy at the very least, at least platforms those opinions. And I think that that's something that's very important that all people's opinions through the dem democratic system are at least platformed. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, what lands up happening when you don't have that is when it comes to you know more minority populations and views that that view is not even expressed at a, at a national political level and it's not heard or engaged with in the way that it should be right i certainly agree with that so i guess what i would like to talk about is maybe zionism's dialectical relationship to the haskalah to the jewish enlightenment movement in europe because well first of all i think most self-defined zionists today tend to use that word as a synonym for Jewish liberation. And I think you expressed something similar. You talked about, you know, Jewish national liberation. Um, but often what I hear, and it's not just what I hear, the truth is I used to do this myself until a few years ago. Uh, I would, and I hear people today, make very anachronistic claims 
about you know like Yuda Maccabee being a Zionist or Rabbi Akiva being a Zionist or uh, Yoshua bin Nun or, or King David being Zionists at taking this kind of modern political word Zionism and retroactively mm. applying it to all Jewish liberation movements throughout time and essentially turning Zionism into a synonym for Jewish liberation always and for me I think it's I feel that it's more accurate to look at Zionism, to isolate Zionism, to look at it as a very specific Jewish liberation movement that arose at a very specific historic moment and set out to solve a very specific set of problems confronting Jews in European societies at that time. Now, I would definitely look at Zionism as a link in the chain of many Jewish liberation movements that if we go back enough, will include Yudha Maccabee and Rabbi Akiva. Um, but I think Zionism is unique enough um, for many reasons that it should not be watered down and turned into this big umbrella term for every Jewish attempt at political liberation throughout history. Yeah, I agree. I think Zionism is unique enough definitely to stand on its own. And I think like you mentioned, there's been multiple dozens of Jewish liberation movements and probably the only reason why we speak about Zionism predominantly within the Jewish perspective today is because it was the only one that was essentially landed up, I mean, if you take out Yehuda Maccabee and whatever, speaking about the liberation movements post the Roman exile, it was the only one essentially that achieved its end goal. So I think that that's why people speak about Zionism in the sense of what they do. Um, at least. And and that's kind of, you know, at least my perspective on it. I do think that there's a difference between the Jewish liberation movements of the past and Zionism and Zionism stands alone. And uh, and it is unique enough to stand on its own. And it has its own um, values, uh, which are values of the time. And uh, at the end of the day, I feel like the reason why there's a focus on that is because it was successful. Um, but I also, at the same time, I understand why people link it, because essentially the idea of Jewish liberation through the sense of returning to this land or part of this land is seen throughout all those liberation movements for the most part, at least. So I think that's where people see the link. But I will agree on the sense that Zionism can and is unique enough to stand alone and probably the only reason why we speak about it more than the other ones um, on a mainstream level, at least, let me say, is because it was successful. Right. I agree with your assessment in terms of Zionism being a link in a much larger chain that included many Jewish attempts to restore political independence to Palestine, to return us to our land and restore Jewish independence here. Uh, Zionism stands out and Zionism has become the word that we kind of now retroactively apply to all of them, largely, as you pointed out, because it succeeded, because it actually established the Jewish state for the first time in almost 2000 years uh, here in our land. But I'd say there are other things that also make it unique, meaning I think that uh, we have to confront the fact that Zionism utilized a very uniquely European form of nationalism ideologically. Um, and I think that still permeates some of Israeli society today, maybe more where you live in Tel Aviv than where I live in the West Bank. But I think that there's like a very kind of European style nationalism that Zionism adopted 
Uh, and also I would say that Zionism adopted many colonialist tools, especially labor Zionism, uh, in pursuing its project. So uh, I think Zionism is very complicated because on the one hand, it was a movement aimed at restoring an ancient native people to the land we had been displaced from, so like correcting an injustice, but, and perhaps this is what allowed it to be successful, but in doing so, it really utilized these colonialist tools, the colonialist methodology, uh, at least partially, in order to achieve those goals, in order to make its program successful. And I think when a lot of critics, uh, whether they be Palestinians or people in pro-Palestinian spaces, uh, attack Zionism as a colonialist movement, what they're looking at are those borrowed colonial tools. They're looking at colonialism more as a verb than as a noun. Like they're not necessarily always making, although sometimes they might be, they're not necessarily always making the claim that we are foreigners who don't belong here, but they're talking about the material act of colonialism being done. Yeah, so I mean, I, I agree. I agree to some extent, and I think it goes into like a broader conversation mm -hmm. of what I what I recognize is essentially is that were those were the tools that were essentially available and recognized by the people of the time because they were living a part of European society. Mm -hmm. Even in some cases, they were obviously very isolated from it. And I think it does go into this broader conversation that I suppose in some ways is easier to have now in retrospect because we are back in the land. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I don't see that we need to remove ourselves um, from our di uh, diasporic experiences. We shouldn't allow that to divide us as a people. Um, and in some ways it has. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't think that we need to shed away our diasporic experiences as a people in order to live authentically in this land. So right. I'm okay with, uh, with with some of that coming along with it. I, I understand, you know, that there's this theory of while we are not colonizers, people experienced us as colonizers. And that's a, you know, a fair argument to make. Um, but, uh, you know, at the end of the at the end of the day, I see it as taking this movement and placing it in the time at which it existed mm -hmm. and using the tools that were available to uh, the Zionists uh, of that time in order to fulfill their goals. Uh, you know, the point you made about us coming back with, you know, multiple diaspora experiences is a very important point. Our sages teach us that when we left Egypt, you know, it says in the Torah that when we left Egypt, uh, we left with gold. We left with Egyptian gold. And in the Torah, by the way, when the Torah talks about gold, it's not usually talking about material wealth. Often the Torah will talk about silver uh, as meaning like material wealth. Gold is often a metaphor for cultural values. And when we left Egypt with gold, you know, we see that some of that gold went to build the Mishkan, the tabernacle, which is good. And some of that gold went to building the golden calf, which we see is bad. So it's not a question of do we shed all of our diaspora experiences? Of course, now I'm talking about the values and cultures that we bring back to our land from the diaspora. That's the gold. The question is, how do we sift it? I wouldn't say that all of that gold, all of those values, all of that culture is good or all of it is bad. I think that we need a sifting mechanism. We need to filter it. We need to decide what aspects of what we bring back from the diaspora 
are beneficial to creating the society we want to create and what aspects, what, what features of what we bring back to our land from the diaspora actually get in the way of what we want to create here. And I think obviously to have that conversation, we have to really think about what we want to create here and um, our own identity and our own historic mission. I agree. And I, I look, I also, I also think that goes both ways. I think it, like in any society, in any era, um, the gold, as, as you were speaking about, comes with the good and the bad. Mm -hmm. So if there's this linkage to shed certain parts of our diasporic experience and kind of rebuild this conversation about what are we as a society today, then it also, for me, fits you know, on the other shoe when it comes to us living as an ancient people. There were both good and bad. And therefore, when we're having this necessary conversation, uh, we can speak about what needs to be shed of our diasporic experience and brought to the modern states of Israel, um, as well as what is part of our ancient civilization of people that is good, that can benefit us today living as Jews in this land and what must be shed from that time as well. So I think it's a two-prong, uh, you know, sword, essentially. Right, right. Often, by the way, on this show and in the vision movement more broadly, when we speak about Zionism, we usually speak about Zionism as this really successful Jewish liberation movement, a link in the chain, as we said, that brought our people home that uh, revived our ancient language, that dried up the swamps, made the land productive. Um, and, uh, you know, we could argue whether or not Zionists fought. I mean, some Zionists did fight the British. I don't know if Zionism was like the force of the movement that led the struggle against British rule here. But it definitely created the infrastructure for a state and established a state once the British left. And we can say that Zionism was the movement that rebuilt our people on the material plane, meaning, you know, the state, the economy, the army, all the things that we kind of share in common with other nations of the world. Uh, Zionism built that. But the question becomes, did Zionism then successfully end in order to make room for a new Jewish liberation movement? Or is there some unfinished business that Zionism still has? Uh, like we more come from the perspective, or I certainly come from the perspective that Zionism ended in 1967. And since then, the people of Israel have been waiting for a new Jewish liberation movement that can protect Zionism's positive achievements while at the same time cleaning up its mess. Sure. But that, you know, to me looks like taking the material vessel built by the Zionist movement and filling it with content. And, you know, it's interesting this dialectical relationship that Zionism has with the Haskalah, with the Jewish Enlightenment, is that on the one hand, you know, we can say that Zionism is a rupture from the Enlightenment, a rupture, like a rejection of the Haskalah in terms of how the Haskalah tried to recreate Jewish identity. I mean, one of the core tenets of Haskalah thinking was that we are Germans with a Jewish religion. We are Frenchmen with a Jewish religion. And then, of course, the Zionists came along and said, wait a minute, we're one people. You know, like a Jew in France and a Jew in Germany are actually brothers. We're part of the same people. And we're not just Frenchmen and Germans who share a religion. Uh, so on the one hand, there's a rejection of Haskalah thinking that Zionism brings to our collective conversation. 
but at the same time, one can look at Zionism as also a continuation of the Haskalah, meaning the Haskalah definitely created the conditions um, for Zionism to arise. And once Zionism achieves its goals, I'm not sure if Zionism achieved all the goals it set out to achieve, like it didn't end anti-Semitism, it didn't normalize the Jewish people, but, you know, it brought us back to our land, revived our language, established a state. You know, once Zionism did all that, is there a danger in Zionism backsliding towards assimilationist tendencies if not replaced by a new Jewish liberation movement? Meaning, you know, I mean, you live in Tel Aviv and there's this impulse, let's say, that might be best reflected in Tel Aviv or most associated with Tel Aviv to just be another flag at the UN, just to be a normal nation, to have a seat at the table and to not aspire for anything greater than that. And for some of us, that's a negation of what we came home for, what we came home to be, uh, that there's actually a larger purpose that brought the Jewish people home after nearly 2000 years in a way that no other ancient destroyed people ever made it home. Sure. So I'd, so I'd say I'd say two things. Uh, the, the first would be what I think is interesting about Israeli society, you know, being someone born in the diaspora in South Africa um, and comparing that to Israeli society. And I'll speak, I'll, I'll refer to what you said about about Tel Aviv, is I think that Judaism is an umbrella term in many ways and people connect to their Judaism in many in, in many different ways. So I don't think that there's necessarily one particular way in which to engage with uh, with your Judaism. I've spoke, had many very interesting conversations with Jews who identify as Zionists here in Tel Aviv, who, who say for them identifying as Jewish and speaking the ancient Jewish language in its revival and practicing the cultures and the traditions is living an authentically Jewish life. Uh, for them identifying as part of a, uh, a, a people that is now a modern state from a, an ancient people is living an authentically Jewish life. Right. I suppose what I'm, what I'm saying is that because Judaism is an umbrella identity, people will connect to it differently. So I don't know if there's, a, uh, I wouldn't say there's particularly a right way or a wrong way, and I wouldn't say necessarily that anyone living in Tel Aviv is less Jewish than someone living, for example, where you live. It's just a different connection to their identity. Now, obviously, there's certain people throughout the country uh, that don't identify as Jewish, and some, in fact, are not Jewish, 20% of our country. So there's also that, you know, to consider within the context of certain parts of Israel. Um, I think the second one, you know, that I'll speak about is when you spoke about fulfilling the greater purpose, mm -hmm. you know, that's not necessarily something that everyone, if not, you know, uh, a, a decent amount of the portion of Israeli society, it's not necessarily the way in which they connect to Judaism or see their lives authentically living here. So I think it's a matter of who is who and how are they connecting to that umbrella term. So, so I think you said something profoundly true. I think you said a couple of things that are profoundly true, but I also kind of felt like they were... I also think they were kind of like mixed in together when I find it easier to separate them out. Uh, first of all, the last point you made that not everybody here is interested in the state fulfilling a higher purpose on the world stage or in history, meaning there are many people, and I guess this 
goes back to the point I made about Zionism as an ideology, there are many people who really see the goal as just, you know, being a normal people, speaking their own language, in their land, part of the international community, with a good economy, safe from any external threats, and that's the goal. And uh, and that's what I meant, that's what I meant when I talked about Zionism after fulfilling its revolutionary role, which I think it did, kind of sliding back towards what I would call an assimilationist impulse. Meaning now that we're a nation, and this was something that was always very prevalent in many Zionist camps, there was this idea that we can only become normal. We failed to become normal in Europe, because a lot of these Zionists were coming from Europe. We failed to become normal in European societies. But once we have a state of our own, once we have a language of our own, once we are able to speak to the world as like a secure, independent nation with a flag and a language and a culture and a land, then we could be normal. And I think that is that is Zionism today. Like I, I'd say people who are Zionist thinkers today might embrace that. I just want to say, and I think you're correct in that in that analysis. I think it was quite clear that Zionism's cause was to return the Jewish people, develop a nation state, okay, be finally be accepted into the family of nations, and through that they would defeat anti-Semitism. I actually wrote a piece called From Dreams to Fears and Back Again, mm -hmm. uh, which hopefully one day I'll turn in the whole theory into a book, uh, where I speak about the two dreams. And the one dream, I mean, it even extends as far as 1967, this dream, where it essentially is uh, the, the acceptance into the family of nations. We see that the, the early Zionists thought that the establishment of the state of Israel would get the Jewish people to be accepted into the family of nations and therefore anti-Semitism would die. And we see that in 1967, the idea of exchanging land for peace, and that was the dream to uh, get um, integration and natural integration into the Middle East, which would uh, essentially make the Jewish people uh, an integral and integrated part of the Middle East with, uh, you know, uh, with the collaboration of the Arab world. I think that is clearly a dream that dissipated. Mm -hmm. I, but I see the dream of the, you know, then I speak about the other dream and the other dream is essentially instead of land for peace, you could settle on the land, which would spur on essentially the Jewish redemption uh, and wound the traumatized psyche and, and, and heal heal the traumatized psyche of the Jewish people due to their diasporic experience as a fulfillment, uh, as settling on that land was seen as a fulfillment of the prophecy and the eventual uh, forthcoming of the Mashiach. So I think that my whole viewpoint on Israeli society is to break free from both of those dreams because both of them have been proven to be incorrect. And we need to come to some, that's where the, the back again comes in. We need to come to some sort of new conversation. And I think that even though we come from very different perspectives on this idea of the dreams to fears, I think that we both agree that we need to come to some new conversation about what is the dream. Um, and that's fundamentally rooted, which I think I might have actually even sent you the, sent you the, the article when it was originally released. Um, but, but that's kind of the stance of where I come from, mm -hmm. this idea of, uh, you know, Zionism was successful as we have in achieving its goals as, as we have stated. It was unique in achieving its goals as we've stated. 
Its one dream was integration into the Middle East and uh, being accepted into the family of nations. And there was definitely from the onset of Zionism, it was we will establish uh, a nation state or and self-determination for the Jewish people. And that will lead to the ending of anti-Semitism, which clearly has proven, you know, to not work. Right. Um, and uh, and like I said, I then divide that on onto the other side, the two dreams. And, you know, the one probably stemmed more from uh, Herzl style thinking and the other one stemmed more from Rav Cook style thinking, where Rav Cook says that the land is, um, I think the analogy he used is we should stop saying the land belongs to us. The land is us, therefore um, not living in certain uh, parts of the ancestral or the biblical homeland is like cutting the legs off the body. That the the legs, we never say uh, that these legs belong to me. We say these legs are me and hence, uh, you know, accepting the, the declaration of independence was cutting the legs off the body. Um, and like I said, that led to post-1967, the idea of settlement on the land would spur on tomorrow's redemption to wound the traumatized psyche of the Jewish people. And the continuation of living on that land would lead to the fulfillment of, of prophecies that would, uh, hence, from that perspective, bring on the Mashiach. But I think both of them have equally, I think both of them are, have equally proven to be incorrect and to not uh, either uh, uh, heal the wounded and traumatized psyche of the Jewish people or to not integrate the Jewish people into the family of nations, uh, kill anti-Semitism and integrate us into the Middle East. So I think we fundamentally would agree that a new conversation for a new dream for the Jewish people needs to be held. I don't necessarily think that needs to be entirely divorced from Zionism, but that's kind of just where I stand on it. So. I would say that Rav Kook is not a Zionist. I think it's a mistake to include Rav Kook in the on in the list of Zionist thinkers. Uh, I think that, uh, in fact, Rav Avram Yitzhak Akoin Kook has a quote where he says that Zionism is too shallow an ideology to sustain a living nation, let alone revive a dead one. But it was Rav Cook's position that uh, the Zionists were doing what they were doing um, for reasons that might even be beyond them. And the explanations they came up with themselves were cute, but, you know, not powerful enough to really uh, sustain this long term. And Rav Cook was of the opinion we should support Zionism. We should work with Zionism. We should see it as a positive historical development, bringing the Jewish people back to the land of Israel uh, and reestablishing a state, obviously positive. But I don't think Rav Cook, I, I don't think it would be correct or I don't think it would be accurate to refer to Rav Cook as a Zionist. I think that would actually be inaccurate. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. What I, what I just to you know, uh, reiterate what I was saying is that the two dreams essentially for me in my mind that stemmed from the Zionist thought on the one hand from, from Herzl, if you had to trace it back in that way to simplify it to the dream of, to the dream and the, the ideology of Rav Cook. And I agree, Rav Cook is not a Zionist, but he, he uh, said it was essential to work with the Zionists because of what they were, what their goal was and what they were achieving throughout the process i'm i'm not saying that those are two zionist dreams i'm saying they're two dreams that became a part of israeli society right. that we saw the death of both with uh, the day after the declaration of independence with uh, you know essentially 
the the natural integration um, uh, and acceptance would kill anti-Semitism with you know the surrounding um, Arab uh, countries waging war on the Jewish state. We also saw the birth, uh, the birth and death of Rav Cook's dream in the sense of that when the Declaration of Independence was signed, it was bar certain parts which Rav Cook essentially deemed were the legs of the body, to go back to that analogy. And I think we saw the rebirth of both of those dreams with the idea, with the victory in 1967, this idea that the victory in the 1967 war would lead to victory of the war itself. And that translated into the dream of exchanging the land for peace versus settling on the land for redemption. So that that's kind of the perspective that I'm I'm coming from. Okay, so maybe I should clarify some, as a student of Rav Kook, I definitely identify as a student of Rav Kook. Um, I think there are some, very subtle misunderstandings of uh, what Rav Cook is saying there. I think that what Rav Cook is saying is not that like we need to do this act of developing Judean Samaria, building Jewish communities in the West Bank, maintaining our hold over the West Bank, and as a result, some magical messianic figure or moment will appear. Uh, I think that Rav Cook is coming much more from the perspective that the children of Israel have a mission in history. We're meant to do something. Uh, we're meant to do something not just for ourselves, but for all of humanity. Like we have a universal mission. And that mission can only be achieved when we are sovereign in our own land. Uh, and uh, specifically the, the heart of our country. I guess what we can call Judea, Jerusalem, Hebron, Bethel, uh, etc that uh, we need to be sovereign in our own land in order to fulfill our mission in history. And that mission is actually a universal mission for all of humanity that will, Bezrat Hashem, end all war and, uh, and, and bring all of humanity to the awareness that we really are a part of one organic whole, that we really are united at the source and uh, should not be in conflict or competition with one another. So in some ways, we can say that it's Israel's mission to lead humanity into a post-capitalist world, but only once we're strong and, and secure in our own land. So I think what what uh, what I was saying, you know, and maybe it's because I used the word, you know, prophecy to, to spur on the return of the Mashiach um, is essentially is essentially that point. I, I phrased it differently. But but yes, Rav Cook's uh, theory was that the Jews need to be need to you know, settle within parts of the land and build communities in parts of the land in order to fulfill the greater purpose. So I think that's, again, that's a, that's a, that that for me comes fundamentally down to what we saw in Israel, the division between which dreams people were following, uh, which I think were pretty much pretty solid and divided in a sense up until the end of the second intifada in a way. This didn't start with Rav Kook, meaning it was just for thousands of years. It was just the Jewish position, the Torah position, however you want to define it, um, yes. that, you know, we have an obligation to free our land from foreign rule and not let any of it fall into foreign hands. Yeah, no, no, 100 uh, percent. I know that that is that that is the, the idea of the, you know, the mission behind um, but disconnected from any messianic aspirations or whatever, like sure, sure. But I think that that leads, you know, us, us perfectly to kind of, I suppose, the reason why we, which was the post that you spoke about earlier, and I think that we we approach this, you know, 
differently and, and that's okay in the sense of it's those two dreams and like i said to me both of the dreams have proven to be incorrect and achieve their goals but it leads directly on to this idea of the communities the settlements whatever term we would like i, I don't want to get bogged down in you know in um semantics in terminology yeah in semantics whatever terms we just you know just decide to use it but it does lead us into uh on a political level precarious situations which was the point that i was kind of making in my tweet which is what you engaged with and what essentially spurred on this uh conversation that we're having right so well first of all i'm a little more interested in um talking about not where both camps were wrong but i'm actually more interested in figuring out where both camps were right meaning what was being expressed by both camps that was like deeply true and deeply central to where we need to go and even if obstacles have arisen that have caused the um i guess what you presented as like these like rival dreams to to kind of be knocked off course or have to you know circumvent certain challenges overcome certain challenges instead of looking at that as well both dreams were wrong both dreams failed maybe and this brings us back to your point about the larger national conversation that's necessary today perhaps these two dreams can be integrated into one larger dream sure i mean you know that that's i think essentially why these conversations need to happen in an internal you know process at a national level i think uh i think you know what what i see you know as a danger is is essentially in the like the geopolitical landscape that we're living in and and internationally expanding the communities in this idea to fulfill our greater purpose in life um does lead to eventual annexation of the land on a political level which does lead to the absorption of the annexed population which in this case would be the Palestinians mm -hmm. now to me there's clear cut empirical evidence on how this absorption would lead to the demographic defeat which essentially also you know contradicts your idea of us needing to be in power as a Jewish majority and i see that demographic defeat will eradicate essentially Jewish uh, self-determination in this land which i feel that we have a right to like all other you know 200 countries okay and it will lead to the dismantling of what is today you know the Jewish democratic nation state of our people and i think that supporting this one state reality for me means one of two things in the political landscape we would need to forgo equality for all in order to preserve Jewish sovereignty which is important for both of us at different from different perspectives but it still remains i think important for both of us Jewish sovereignty whether it's for me as a from a perspective of self determination or for you from a perspective of fulfilling our greater purpose okay at which we would we would find ourselves in a precarious situation in order to maintain that of needing to strip other members of society of certain rights or we would need to forgo the idea of Jewish self-determination and sovereignty to maintain that equality for all which in my opinion won't end up being a very equal society because uh, at least not for the Jews because i do think that palestinian palestinian leadership and the greater arab world have been very clear for 75 years on their intentions with the with with the idea of a Jewish state existing in any part of the land 
between the river to the sea. And, you know, we, we can essentially disagree on the way in which we view the state, but we both think it's important for the Jewish people to maintain sovereignty. And I feel that I want my people to live in a political state where they obtain their, obtain their right to self-determination like anyone in the world. And, you know, I'm of the view, looking at certain statistics, that a gross majority of Israelis, as well as Jewish communities in the, in the diaspora, support that fundamental idea. And that is the perspective that I'm coming across from why I'm against the idea of a one-state solution and expansion of settlements slash communities. So what you're essentially presenting and what you presented the other day in your post is what some people call the Zionist trilemma, right? It's not a new claim. Basically, it's the argument that the Jewish people can only have two out of three of the following things. We can have a Jewish state, the land of Israel, democratic society, right? One, two, and three. And we have to choose two. We can either have a Jewish state and the land of Israel without a democratic society. We could have a Jewish state and the democratic society without all of the land of Israel. Or we can have the land of Israel, a democratic society, but it won't be a Jewish state. That's essentially the argument you're putting forward, correct? So yeah, I know my argument's nothing new. I'm not presenting it as something new. I suppose when I look at the empirical evidence that sits before me, that's kind of the conclusion that I come to. Okay, so first of all, look, usually when I hear this claim, I, I find it a little hard to take seriously because I often hear it as coming from uh, very shallow thinking and an unwillingness to actually do the work of defining what makes a state Jewish, what makes a state democratic. There's also like, honestly, I'm not comfortable with talking about like demographic threats. I think it feels inherently racist to me to be concerned with like how many Palestinian babies are being born and how that's going to affect our sense of security here. But but I respect you and I'm hoping um, that you'll be able to provide a, a much more compelling argument for this Zionist trilemma than most of the two-state Jews who I've spoken to in the past. I also think that just based on my, I, I have about 13 years of piecework under my belt with Palestinians. And I've only met one Palestinian in the last 13 years who would support a two-state solution. And it's really only because he plans to have Mahmoud Abbas's job one day. Uh, other than him, the vast majority of Palestinians I speak to believe that the most just solution here would be a single democratic state between the river and the sea. Uh, and I, I think just from a perspective, you know, Jewish history aside, the visions of our prophets and sages and Israel's purpose aside, all of those things aside, I can't argue with the justice of those claims that the most just solution, certainly from the Palestinian perspective, would be a single democratic state where all people are fully equal between the river and the sea. That that does make sense to me. Um, and certainly, you know, looking at it through a Palestinian lens. And, and it's always a question with Palestinians whether they're looking to reverse the power dynamics or level the power dynamics to make them fully equal. But I, I think that was honestly what you expressed and this Zionist trilemma was a lot of the driving force behind, at least behind Israelis who supported a two-state solution in the past. I think there's a, and I think it is coming from a Zionist place in the way we were defining Zionism before is kind of like, now that the revolutionary world is over, we just want to be a normal nation. I think that the people, the, the people I'm most comfortable referring to as Zionists today are those who really just want Israel to be an outpost of Western civilization in the Middle East. 
those who want to see an Israel that kind of reflects the values of the West, but here maybe armed and funded by the United States in pre-67 borders, um, a quote-unquote normal nation. And I think that among those people, and, and I think those people for the last few decades have really controlled Israeli society. This is the most dominant force in Israeli society. This is the ruling class of Israeli society. Those who control politics, the media, academia, etc. There's this drive to be a normal nation uh, or what Ehud Barak called a, a villa in the jungle, right? And, and that's actually a very colonialist mindset. Uh, I think that, you know, I'm not looking for a Jewish Rhodesia. I'm looking to rebuild Hebrew civilization in the 21st century according to reality as reality exists now. And I think that requires us to do some of the hard work of not running away from this problem of, well, how are we going to have a Jewish state and how are we going to make it equal for non-Jews and how are we going to have all the land? You know, this impulse to kind of gerrymander artificial borders in order to get rid of as many non-Jews as possible, I'm not with that. For me, there's no retreat from the land, meaning this land is our soulmate, just like I wouldn't share my wife. You know, I'm not willing to divide Eretz Israel. Uh, in fact, I've been very clear, and I'm certainly clear with Palestinians that I'm interested in returning to Gaza. I think the only way we're going to stop these wars from happening every couple of years is if we actually go back to Gaza, but do it justly. Not talking about a right to the land, but talking about a responsibility to the land and a responsibility to everybody in the land. Meaning that I think what we're challenged to do is to figure out a way to create a one-state reality that is fully inclusive and fully democratic, yet at the same time deeply Jewish and allows us to feel like we have achieved the aspirations of our ancestors in this state that we create. And at the same time, for Palestinians to be able to feel like they are fully equal members of a democratic society in all of historic Palestine. So, yeah. So, uh, look, there's a couple of things that I'll, I'll try to get to and that I've noted in my head. Hopefully I don't forget them along the way. Um, when I'm speaking of the demographic argument, I understand making that argument that when I speak of that, it can come across inherently racist. My point to that is that we both agree from our different perspectives that Jewish sovereignty of this land is important, which you reiterated towards the end of your point. Mine's from a national self-determination perspective. Yours was from the perspective of fulfilling the greater purpose. And I know I'm just summing this up, but in order to not kind of get bogged down in it, Jewish sovereignty over the land is important to both of us from one perspective or the other. But I think often what, what we tend to forget, and, and, and this is now, I'm speaking at a political level because that's my background and where I come from, is I think when Palestinians refer to a one-state solution reality that works for them, mm -hmm. okay, I think that what we're forgetting is that settling the refugees or their millions of descendants into the state of Israel was not and still isn't a humanitarian gesture, but rather a political action taken up by Palestinian leadership aimed at restoring Arab and Muslim dominance to a land that the Palestinians have been consistent from a leadership perspective that they view it as exclusively theirs. So for me, this idea of the right of return is not necessarily an innocent idea divorced from the border of Arab political rejection of Jewish self-determination. It was never, for me at least, the way I look at it, is it's never simply just been about returning Arabs to the entirety of the land, but about returning the entirety of the land to the Arabs. So I understand 
full well that the demographic argument is something that appears to be racist on the surface level. I understand the waters that I'm treading on when I make that argument, but I think it's a very imperative argument to make that I don't see a surface level because it is a defining factor on what the reality of the state could be and what it could mean for Jewish sovereignty, right? So that's why I see that the reason why, despite many Palestinian refugees wanting to return to their home in the course of the war or immediately thereafter 48, the Palestinian leadership simply opposed it, arguing in doing so that there was a particular moment, uh, in that particular moment, returning and returning thereafter would mean effective recognition of Israel's existence as a Jewish sovereign state. And in many ways, they've subsequently walked away from every peace offering on the table over that principle. So I don't see it just as a humanitarian gesture. I also see it as a political action that I think is worth actually acknowledging in that sense. And I also think that the idea of returning uh, millions of refugee descendants is not a principle upheld by uh, refugee uh, status in international law for any people, not for the 850,000 Jews expelled from Arab lands who were living as dimmies for, you know, God knows how long, um, not for uh, the descendants of Holocaust survivors, Syrians, Rwandans, um, you know, the list goes on. It's a right that UNRWA has essentially perceived and I think that the problem is is that there's Western indulgence of this Palestinian imagination that the land is simply temporary until freed. So I can fully understand from that perspective why a two-state solution is not seen as just from a Palestinian perspective and they prepared would want to live in a one-state reality. Okay. But I also think that, you know, I suppose the question that I have to you is that you spoke about maintaining national sovereignty of over the land okay and making the state more jewish that the state that we have today is essentially a european nation state with jewish decorations and you wanting it to be more of a deep-rooted jewish state which is fine but in doing so the palestinians for me have been consistent in their rejection of the idea that a jewish state should exist in any part of the land between the river to the sea so i'm just trying to work out what the correlation is and how what your plan is to get there of mm. simultaneously making the state more deeply rooted and Jewish, mm. okay, at the same time as having uh, maintaining Jewish sovereignty and, and national control over our land, attributing to our self-determination, while also maintaining this idea that Palestinians will be able to live equally with uh, not feeling othered in the state. I, I, I just don't see how those, those necessarily correlate. So that's kind of the question that, that I have. That's more than one question, by the way, and they're all important questions. And I think that that's where we are. Like, that's where we are in history, I would say, after the collapse of the two-state paradigm. Meaning, I think that most of Israeli society right now acknowledges a two-state paradigm didn't work and probably won't work, but they have not been presented with an alternative. So in polling, you'll still see some like passive support for two-state ideas, or now they'll say confederation or whatever, um, because nobody has really presented an alternative. And part of the problem is any real alternative is not only going to require very creative political thinking, but it will also require a major change in the relationship dynamics between us and the Palestinians. Meaning it's, uh, we're not talking about living together as we relate to each other now, because right now in the Israeli mind, Palestinians are the enemy. 
And I don't care if somebody votes for Meretz or Yamina or Otsma, like they see Palestinians as the enemy. And in the Palestinian mind, we're the enemy. And in the Palestinian mind, the very concept of Jewish state, you know, you mentioned that uh, Palestinians reject the notion of a Jewish state of any kind. And I think that that's largely because the only experience they've ever had with something called a Jewish state has been extremely oppressive. That's been their experience. So, you know, often when I have these conversations with Palestinians, I can't just use the term Jewish state. Like when we talk about the future solutions, what things can look like here, I don't just say, yeah, like a Jewish state, because if I say Jewish state, they're going to hear all of the negative things they've experienced over the last several decades. I have to talk about what Jewish state means to me. You know, what I think a Jewish state is, you know, what Jews like me think a Jewish state can look like, what that means for a non-Jew, meaning that's one of the conversations we just haven't had yet. I think that's probably a crucial component of the post-colonial conversation to think about, well, what is the place of a non-Jew in a Jewish society when the Jews have power? Because, you know, for the last couple thousand years, we've had no power and we've largely related to Gentiles as the enemy, as the oppressor, you know, and that, that was, especially Ashkenazim, that was our experience. So, you know, now that we're back in our land and have power again, there are different possibilities for relationships, meaning a non-Jew doesn't just have to be the enemy, a non-Jew can be an ally. You know, a, a lot of the lessons we've learned over the centuries were lessons that were most relevant to us in situations of powerlessness. Meaning, like you mentioned before, us being dimmies in uh, in Arab lands. That's true. And they were able to make us dimmies because they were able to make us dimmies. We had no power. Today, we do have power, which means that what people are able to do to us is different. But the way we use that power also has to be has to be discussed. Because unfortunately, I think one of the things that's very clear is that Jews are not comfortable with power. Or we, we have to learn to become comfortable with power again. Um, some of us want to overuse it. Some of us want to underuse it. I think the state of Israel often misuses it. I think we often uh, use it the wrong way, especially with Palestinians. And maybe we don't use it enough when dealing with the international community. But I think that in order to be able to imagine what a single state can look like and how to get there, those are, by the way, two different conversations, in my opinion. Uh, but to imagine what a single state can look like, what we really need to do is unpack the national stories, the narratives, the aspirations, the grievances of the Jewish people and the Palestinian people, and, and to acknowledge that within both of those two peoples, there are many different camps who might have different aspirations, different grievances, slightly different narratives at times, and that needs to be accounted for as well. And of course, also the demographic trajectory of both societies. Meaning when we talk about solutions here, we can't just talk about solutions within the framework of what Israeli and Palestinian societies look like today. We have to look at where both societies are going. We have to look at what sectors of Palestinian society and what sectors of Israeli society are having the most children. Meaning the fastest growing population between the river and the sea is Haredi. Like that means something that's going to impact what this country looks like 30 years from now. Uh, I think second place is probably a tie between Jews like me and Palestinians. And then behind us, there's Mizrahim, meaning this is going to be a very different country in 30, 40 years. And whatever solutions we talk about have to 
take into consideration not only what our societies look like today, but where our societies are going. Uh, so that's also important. So when we talk about aspirations, when we talk about uh, narratives, when we talk about what kind of country uh, we're looking to create, I think we need to give a lot of um, weight to the communities that are actually growing the fastest. And, and I think that the contradictions between, let's say, my camp of Israeli society and Palestinians are actually much less than the contradictions between Zionism and Palestinians. Meaning I think I think the contradictions between what Palestinians would like to see here and what Tel Aviv would like to see, what Zionism would like to see, um, can't work together in the same way that maybe my vision for the country and Palestinian aspirations can work together. Because I think to a certain extent, the Zionists, or what we call Tel Aviv, wants some sort of settler colony here. They want Israel to be an outpost of Western civilization in an otherwise savage region. You know, and I don't think that kind of thinking can be reconciled with Palestinian efforts at liberation or decolonization. Uh, but I think that for those of us living in the West Bank and those of us really living Jewish history and, and deeply connected uh, to the country in the way that we are and to our history and identity in the way that we are, I, I think that a lot of the colonial features of Zionism can actually be dismantled in a way that meets Palestinian needs and yet allows us to feel like we still have a deeply Jewish state here. And of course, when I talk about the Jewish character of the state, I'm talking about a very soft but deep character, meaning it's important to me that I experience this country as Jewish. It's important to me that, uh, you know, the Haredim, who don't think of it as a Jewish state today, start to think of it as deeply Jewish. I'm not sure I need Palestinians to recognize the state as Jewish on a daily basis, meaning, uh, you know, I'm happy if Palestinians experience themselves living as equal citizens of a democratic society and barely notice it's Jewish, while a Haredi child, because of his level of Jewish education, might see the Jewishness in almost every aspect of the policies and institutions of the state. Maybe if we made the Jewishness of the state or the, the ability to perceive the Jewishness of the state dependent on one's Jewish education, then those who want the Jewish state would get it, and those who aren't interested in a Jewish state won't see it. Sure. So, I mean, uh, you know, I think for the most part, we're on similar pages when it comes to that. I do think, though, that Palestinian society being part of the greater Arab world for so many years does need to come as well to a reckoning with themselves when it comes to their, the Palestinian rejectionism. Uh, that it's not fundamentally just rooted in this Zionist idea of establishing a Jewish state. Mm -hmm. the, you know, there's been anti-Jewish ideas running throughout Arab society for as long as we can kind of, you know, historically trace back. And we kind of see the predominant rise. I'm not saying that it didn't extend further back than that. We see the predominant rise with the birth of Islam, where Jews who were practicing their belief system in Torah uh, and not adapting and it's a similar thing to Christianity and not adapting to what was seen as the new enlightened in inverted commas belief system of the time were you know could merely be tolerated as relics and if not as relics then their mere existence should come at a cost and that kind of leads through 
throughout history, throughout the history of this land, throughout, and when I speak about this land, I'm talking about the greater Middle East region, leading to Jews being dimmies in certain states. And we also see that before the state of Israel was established, there was the Arab League boycotts, boycotting Jewish-owned businesses and Jewish people living in the land. So I think that, you know, as much as we need to reckon with certain things that, that we have done and the obstacles to peace that we have created, I think Palestinians also need to go through a deep reckoning themselves of why they have been rejecting the idea of a Jewish state existing in any part of this land, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever part of the land it is, is irrelevant when it comes to them needing to reckon with the fact that a lot of their society is deeply fundamentally rooted in an anti-Jewish thought. Okay, I mean, that's the way I see it on the one hand. I also see what you're, I also see what you're saying about the one state reality, and I'm always very careful. I really don't like to, one thing I'll never do is superimpose other people's histories, conflicts, analogies, oppression onto the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I think that's very dangerous. I think this is a very unique conflict that rests on issues, while it might be 75 years old, it rests on issues that are millennia old. Okay, but I do think when it comes at a political level at looking at conflict resolution, it's important to look at certain uh, elements that exist in different parts of the world. Certainly, for sure, I will acknowledge under different circumstances, but we can look at, you know, two divided ethnic uh, conflicts in a sense or oppressive societies in a sense and we can look at the examples of Rwanda and let's say my birthplace of South Africa and we can see how Rwanda between the ethnic conflict between the Hutus and the Tutsis which eventually landed up in a genocide a terrible genocide in 94 1 million um, murdered how they created their one state reality which has essentially led them to becoming one of if not the most developing African country as we speak and very successful was literally for Paul Gakame to make it illegal for anyone in the country to identify as Hutu and Tutsi and create a broader spectrum of identity that of Rwandan to the perspective that it's illegal to the point where you can face imprisonment or criminal punishment hmm. to identify as Hutus and Tutsis and I think that Jews, because of our history and because of our deep-rooted connection to who we are, as well as Palestinians, because of their history and who they are and the way in which they connect to this land, I don't think something like that works. When you look at South Africa, which is a completely different perspective, and I, I want to be clear, I'm not making any analogies to uh, to apartheid. I think, you know, I, I, I wrote a column for Newsweek dismantling the amnesty report from a South African perspective and from someone that lives within Israel. But what I'm saying is when that oppressive society, which was very divided, came together, they took the opposite stance of Rwanda. We're now in South Africa, there's 11 official languages. Uh, there's multiple ethnic and national identities. But what we've actually seen that reality create as in many cases that it does create when there's no clear majority is actually an even further unequal society, an unequal society in South Africa that is now cutting both ways because no one understands truly what their identity is. You've got the Afrikaans, Dutch, you've got the British who came in there. Obviously, then you've got our Jewish community, which is entirely unique because they came post the pogroms in Eastern Europe and post the Shoah. So let's leave that out of there. But then you've also got the Zulus and, and the Khazars and a whole bunch of different ethnic African groups. Okay, which 
are not even actually native to the land. That was the Khoisan. But in South African society, you see a complete total disruption of any form of identity and unification, not only because of its past, but because of how the conflict was resolved. There was no reckoning, number one. And it was kind of like, we're the rainbow nation and there's no national identity. You can identify as you want within that state. And it has seen literally societal divisions that are as bad. And I call South Africa today apartheid, not in name, but still in, uh, not in system and not in name, but uh, still in practice in a way. Okay, because there are divisions there because there's no unifying national identity. And I think that this is the thing. If Palestinians are to live in this land under one state reality where they don't see the state as a Jewish state, yet we maintain Jewish national uh, sovereignty and the state is Jewish enough for us, we're living with two different peoples in a different reality. And I think every time that we've seen that throughout history, when it comes to conflict resolution, that leads to civil war where whenever there's a clear majority with minorities, you actually find, and it's counterintuitive, I get it, I know what I'm saying is counterintuitive, I'm aware of that. Where you see a clear majority with minorities, you actually see a more equal society. Okay, so uh, first of all, I think we have layers of identity. I, for example, am a Kohen, more broadly speaking, you can say I'm a Jew, as that word is used today, uh, I'm an Israeli. <clears throat> Palestinians also have layers of identity. You know, somebody can be sure. like uh, a Hebronite, you know, Blusi, the Palestinian, maybe they're Arab, you know, maybe they're Muslim, maybe they're not Muslim. Like we all have layers of identity. What you shared regarding Rwanda, I mean, it sounded a little bit extreme, obviously, that it's illegal to identify as Hutu or Tutsi, but there's something to be said for a layer of identity that we can share. So I think that there's there might be some value in that, uh, whether we're going to call that layer Semitic, like maybe Palestinians and Israelis can share a Semitic identity. Um, you know, maybe we'll actually share a Palestinian identity if, if we're defining Palestinian as the indigenous peoples of Palestine throughout time. And in my experience, that's actually how Palestinians define the term. Like when they say Palestinian, what they mean is the native peoples of Palestine throughout time including the Canaanites, including the Philistines, including our ancestors, including crusaders who just happened to stay here and absorb into the local population. You know, th that's how uh, the word is often understood in Palestinian society. So maybe that word would be one we could share, but we certainly are two different peoples who are very attached to our different layers of identity, and we're not gonna absorb into one. And we're not going to be a civic national identity like uh, Canadian or American or any other kind of like settler colonial society with their liberal uh, civic national identities. That's not going to work here. And we saw that last spring. Like we saw that when we saw fighting in places like Lod and Akko. It's very clear that when the majority of Israelis talk about being Israeli, they mean Jews. You know, this idea of like an Israeli Arab is not real, meaning it's a lie we tell ourselves. They're Palestinians who happen to have Israeli citizenship, and that's great. I'd like to see all Palestinians eventually have Israeli citizenship, but we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that we're just like one identity now, because most Israelis, when they think of being an Israeli, they think of the children of Israel, and they're not relating to those Palestinian neighbors in Lod as like their people. 
and we need to we need to own that. We need to confront it. We can't run away from it or try to uh, to hide it from the world. We, we have to. The, the truth is, I think we have to confront all of our strengths and weaknesses, all of the things that need to be fixed, and all of the things that we're proud of should really be like front and center because we have a lot of work. That's the reckoning we need to come come to. I agree with you about when a lot of people. And that extends even into Jewish diasporic communities, refer to Israelis, they're referring predominantly to Jews, whether they're consciously or subconsciously doing it. Uh, I don't think, however, though, entirely from my experience, you know, I engage and work a lot with uh, Arabs living with within, uh, you know, Tel Aviv and, and, you know, even parts of East Jerusalem uh, um, and, and essentially throughout this land, Lord, etc., that it's an insult to refer to them as Arab Israelis when a lot of, the, of them refer to themselves as such. So I'm of the opinion that if you want to refer to yourself as a Palestinian with Israeli citizenship or an Arab Israeli, that's fine for me. I'm not going to tell you what you can call yourself. Uh, it doesn't, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't matter to me. But I think for me, the idea of, uh, you know, and, and I just feel that it's essential for me, you know, to just make this point of when Palestinians, you know, if they had to return into the full part of the land, which I, which I understand in many ways is just for them as it's just for us. I don't, I don't not acknowledge that, but I do feel like we're in a reality where I see the connection to the land in an, in, a, in an analogy. If I can use an analogy that that us as Jewish people, right, I see us as like, let's say, a couple on their wedding night, mm -hmm. right? And the couple on their wedding night go after their wedding and they go to a park and they find a park bench and they sit under the park bench under this beautiful tree and they have the most incredible moment of their lives, okay? And they leave the park. That's the night their honeymoon starts. It's a beautiful, beautiful night that they will remember forever. That is the fundamental moment of their relationship that they will refer back to. But they leave the park and that can, you know, reference our exile from the Romans. When they return to the park, they go through through once they've left the park, they go through a horrendous time throughout their marriage. OK, everything that could go wrong to them has gone wrong to them. So what they do is they return to the park bench in order to reignite that spark that was once there. But when they get to the park bench, there's another couple sitting on the park bench. Okay. And that other couple can, in this analogy, can refer to the Palestinians. And there's a reckoning that we have to come with as Jews uh, to realize that, okay, well, now there are another people here who have a national identity and want some form of national self-determination. Um, and, and I think that that's, you know, that's something to look at, but it, it kind of leads into my point of, you know, going back to this idea of the right of return with Palestinians returning into, you know, all parts of this land. I truly, and I truly, truly believe this from the research and the conversations I've had and looking at, uh, what Palestinian leadership have said, and I'm not making a generalized statement that every Palestinian in the whole part of the land thinks this, what Palestinian leadership have said, who are the leaders and their uh, leadership of their people today, and we can speak about, you know, how that could become a change in reality, but in the reality in which we exist today and how it has been for 75 years, 
I don't see the settlement of the millions of descendants in the state of Israel as a humanitarian gesture, but a political action. I, I think they've made that quite clear. And I think that my biggest problem with the West, and I know that we have, a, we, we both share that issue sometimes in the same ways and sometimes in different ways, okay, is, you know, there, there's this term called Westsplaining, right? And it comes from mansplaining. You know, when a, when a woman expresses something and a man feels like he needs to interject and essentially re-say what the woman's saying to give it broader context and a greater understanding, because God forbid, you know, someone might not understand that. I see a lot of what's happening is Westplaining. I see the Palestinian rejectionism of Jewish national self-determination in this land as consistent. They say it, they've said it, and they've continued to say it for 75 years. And through their UNRWA organization, they have kept the dream alive that there is no future goal for a new reality. Okay, but rather this land is temporarily free. This land is temporary. This existence is temporary until it's freed of uh, Jewish sovereignty. And it goes into the broader perspective. A lot of, you know, Palestinians that I've engaged with have said right straight out to me. And that's one thing I'll that's one thing I must say I truly respect in the Palestinians is that they are consistent and I've never had a Palestinian that I felt ever lie to me. Okay, I think we're inconsistent and I think we need to be consistent. And sometimes when we have these conversations, we lack the consistency because we don't want to sound unreasonable. And I think needing to just be consistent and 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 relinquishing ourselves of of this kind of fear of sounding unreasonable will also allow us to be more honest and consistent in our, in our engagement. But I've had many, many Palestinians that I've engaged with say, we recognize your might. That's why we find with you being here right now, but we don't recognize your right. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, as you know, that that's a very important thing because in the changing of the reality of what the future of what we're speaking about, if people don't recognize your right, might, when it comes to power, is not something that's always there. We've seen our powers of Jewish people living in this land, even in our ancient civilization, as rising and falling, mm -hmm. right? And that's not something that, that I would want to lose today for multiple reasons, okay? Because I certainly don't want to be sent back into uh, a time uh, pre-our our liberation, Okay, I think we need to move forward and I think we need to come to certain reckonings with that, with the power and with our responsibility. And I think that the Palestinians need to come to certain reckonings with their rejection of uh, of Jewish people. And the reality is that the, the Palestinian Arabs, however, you know, some people say, well, they weren't Palestinians. Well, I'm, I don't want to go into that semantic saying it's irrelevant for me. Pal the Palestinian Arabs didn't treat Jews in this land when we were a minority in this land as equal. That's just the empirical evidence. And that's a reckoning that they need to come with. And we need to come to certain reckonings with regards to power and responsibility in order for us to even have these conversations. But I don't see the right of return as a humanitarian gesture. I see it as a political action. They've been consistent in 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 saying that. And sorry, just to end off back on the West planning idea, is I constantly see, you know, Americans and Westerners say, oh, but they don't really mean that. It's like, no, why don't you have enough respect for the Palestinian people to listen to what they say and take them at their word? They do mean that. 
as we say things that are problematic that we do mean and we take actions that are problematic in the way of the occupation in some in some senses that we do mean and that are wrong and that we need to accept responsibility for but i think there needs to just be a greater context of we disagree on a lot of fundamental things right but at the end of the day we're both telling each other for the most part what we want i think we're more inconsistent with doing that as i've stated but the palestinians that i've engaged with on a personal level at which i know you engage with palestinians and you have done for for decades at which i respect and i've been trying to do that for the last couple of years both from when i was still living in the diaspora uh, and working in think tanks and research as well as in my period of time here since i've been living within the state of israel and that's kind of you know the harsh reality that i come to that i feel i need to reckon you're telling me what you want and i'm listening to you and i hear you and if someone tells me that the and i'm not saying this is one individual i'm saying that this is my experience and i understand that your experience in many ways is different and i think that that's important to acknowledge is that we have different experiences with the conversations that we're having with different people I've had multiple people express the idea that we accept you being in this land because of your might but not your right. And that for me is an issue because we, we haven't have- been the second part. Meaning in terms of that, you know, I think that to make peace, I actually, you know, I I have a background just before I came to this country, before I came into Jewish national issues, I had grown up in a place where I had experienced what it was to have enemies and to make peace with enemies. and i think yeah. that to make peace and this is something i hear you're you saying to make peace i feel you have to do two things to make peace with anybody really yeah you have to number one make people afraid to fight you like people have to be afraid of conflict with you like it's not in their interest to have conflict with you and that is i think what you mean by might like we've done that israel has done that at different points in the last few decades but the second part we've never done and the second part is actually to be just actually to behave in a way that communicates to any potential enemy not only am i scared to fight him i don't even want to fight him he's not a bad guy like he's not doing anything to hurt me and the problem is even though israel has at different points of time made our neighbors the palestinians you know others in the region afraid to fight us afraid of our might we haven't behaved in a way that communicates we're actually one of the good guys we're actually going to behave justly and that we've never done like when i speak about a one state solution i'm talking about us taking responsibility like you know civil servants living in jenin or living in kalkilia or living in betlehem should be receiving israeli salaries and it should be the same salary that an israeli worker in the same job is making you know we should be responsible for healthcare in Hebron and we should be responsible for healthcare in Jericho and in Shechem and in Gaza like we need to take responsibility it's not that we have a right to the land it's that we have a responsibility to the land and to everybody in it and i want every non-jew living in this land to feel good about the fact that they're living in a state that takes care of them and treats them like fully equal citizens we're not there yet i i think that part of the problem mentally israeli society isn't there yet like uh, unfortunately uh, but that's where where i think we need to go but it needs to be coming you know i i think we need to dig deeper into our own identity in order to find universal answers to a lot of our current challenges 
that can actually challenge Western universalism on its own ideological turf. Like, for example, minority rights or workers' rights, um, or even now we're in a Shemitah year right now. There's an argument to be made that at the beginning of this year on the Hebrew calendar, um, we should have wiped out everybody's minus, right? Once every seven years. Or should banks in the state of Israel charge interest? I think we haven't yet had a real conversation over what makes a state Jewish. Uh, for me, it doesn't mean a demographic majority. I'm not against a demographic majority, but I don't think the definition of Jewish state needs to necessitate it. Uh, I don't even think it's like a bunch of superficial decorations on like a British colonial system or on a European style nation state. I think that this needs to be a state that expresses our people's identity and our values and its policies and institutions, including how we treat the non-Jew. And I think that if we were to do that, uh, that would be an act of decolonization. And I think that that would also eliminate the vast majority of structures and policies that Palestinians feel oppressed by. Now, it could be you're right. Like what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, the Palestinian opposition to us is not just about us oppressing them. It's about a deeper ideological hatred towards Jews or need to dominate Jews. Maybe you're right. But we'll find out if we eliminate the oppressive structures, meaning if we eliminate all of the features of Zionism, all of the features of the state of Israel that actually are oppressive to Palestinians and some of them still want to fight us. I'd have a lot less problem, you know, fighting with real brutality because I would know that it's not because I'm oppressing him. It's because there's something like deeply driving him to attack me or attack my people. But right now it's hard to even tell because there are oppressive structures controlling their lives. You know, I don't like the way we're living in the West Bank. I don't like the way Jews are living in the West Bank today. I want to end the occupation. For me, that doesn't mean forcing Jews to leave here. And, and it certainly doesn't mean Israel surrendering the territory. For me, ending the occupation means changing the way we live here, not living here in a way that oppresses another people. And just like I think we need to define what a Jewish state means, we need to define what democracy means. I think a lot of Israeli society today uses democracy as a synonym for westernization. For me, democracy means any system that empowers people to be able to influence the structures they live under. I think we can have a fully democratic system in place here, an economy that reflects our identity, a banking system that reflects our identity, minority rights that reflect our identity, and actually create something that allows Palestinians to feel like equal citizens in a democratic society between the river and the sea. I know you keep bringing up the refugee issue. I'd love to have you back on the show to talk about refugee, maybe with some Palestinians to talk about questions of Palestinian refugee issues. But I just don't feel it totally appropriate for like us to have the conversation now, especially given that this conversation has uh, gone on a lot longer than we expected. I'd like yeah. to shelf the refugee question for now, although I think there's a lot to say there. But right now, you know, as a Jew living in the West Bank, for ideological reasons, I do have to say, you know, we're not homogenous. There are many different types of Jewish communities in the West Bank and many different types of Jews living in each of those communities. I think there are a lot of different motivations that drive us to live where we live and be who we are and promote the policies we promote. But I would say that the common denominator the ideological common denominator that I would argue the vast majority of Jews living in the West Bank subscribe to is that we are a proud ancient people from this land. We were unjustly displaced against our will. 
we somehow managed to return home against all odds after thousands of years, and now the international community wants to displace us again through this two-state paradigm. And for us, honestly, I know there are people like people on the outside or maybe Zionists in Tel Aviv want to slap this like messianic label on us. The truth is the only method of resistance we figured out so far not to be displaced from the heart of our country again is to build as many homes and to build as many communities as possible to make it logistically impossible to displace us. And I think we've been successful. I think we're already at the point where whether we keep building or don't keep building, we are here for good. We are not leaving and Israel is going to have to legally annex this territory and we're going to have to figure out how to create a fully, truly democratic society for all peoples that we will still experience as Jewish between the river and the sea. Like that's going to have to happen. And I think the longer we avoid that conversation, we avoid those discussions, the longer it will take to actually figure it out and reconcile with the Palestinians uh, in a real way. Uh, now, maybe it'll take some years, maybe it'll take some demographic shifts, maybe it'll take certain sectors of Israeli society becoming more powerful or more dominant on our side for this conversation to really move forward. But again, the longer we talk about a two-state paradigm, the longer we limit ourselves to functioning within that paradigm, I think ultimately the more people are going to die. So um, I think the first thing I want to bring up is, is you mentioned something that, that's very important when it comes to the funding uh well you didn't say funding you said that we should be funding uh certain communities uh of no, the palestinians should, we should take responsibility for all the peoples in our land yeah take responsibility with regards to that okay so i understand that uh but but i think what's very important to note is that you know the palestinian leadership themselves have, uh, and it goes back into the issue of the West, the Palestinian leadership have themselves on multiple occasions actually asked, okay, America, for example, to stop funding UNRWA schools and start funding the Palestinian Authority school system. They have a school system set up for Palestinian children, which is grossly underfunded, okay, which is which which doesn't benefit their population in the long term, but they have a, system, a school system that they have set up. It's just it, the funding is going into uh, UNRWA, and UNRWA is setting up schools, which we know the problem. There's many problems with UNRWA and, and the school system. We've seen the evidence of of certain anti-Semitic uh, language and indoctrination that is being taught being taught in those schools, and I think that that's a big problem. Okay, and I think that. You know, these the, the Western states can turn around and say that they, you know, in whatever reality they want to 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 create or support to create, okay, they can say that they believe in the Jewish national self-determination and they believe in Palestinians' rights to national self-determination. They can go on about it for days and days and days, but at the end of the day, okay, they're not actually that by funding UNRWA, they continue to fund uh, this. This, uh, this continued idea and essentially, which in my opinion, leads to more rejectionism. And I think that that's a problem. I think that there are people that are involved in this conflict, which maybe they should or shouldn't be, but that's kind of what happens in a conflict. You know, there's always going to be some mediator involved from some other country, okay, or multiple medias, uh, mediators involved. Okay, we see that even with us playing that role within Russia and Ukraine now. Um, and 
you know, I, I don't necessarily see it as uh, maybe it's just because of the fundamental idea that I don't see the land as one and you do. And I understand where, why we differ on that. And it's not it's you know, it's just a, a, a mere perspective of 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 different ideologies and, and ways in which we view the land and the state. But I think that this you know, I think both Israelis and Palestinians have a responsibility to hold the people that are getting involved and in the middle of this conflict accountable. There's there are people that are dividing us even further by funding stuff like UNRWA, mm. because it doesn't do any benefit for the Palestinians to have uh, UNRWA funded. It doesn't allow them to get on with some form of you know sovereignty, power, and growth. That's the reality. And it doesn't, uh, and uh, uh, and that's what leads continually leads me back to this point. Why is the Palestinian leadership simultaneously asking America to stop funding UNRWA billions, okay, and fund the Palestinian school system, but then at the same time, okay, uh, rejecting uh, rejecting any notion of. Um, you know, some sort of, you know, solution. And, 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 and the next thing what I'll say is I don't think that Jews should leave the areas in which you're living in. Like, even though I know to you, I have more of a two state reality stance and, and, and that's fine, but I don't think Jews should leave the areas. And I think that's completely, completely, uh, unreasonable and unrealistic with the situation that we're in. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do think though that you know, at, at the end of the day, Jews should be able to live in all parts of the land. I think where the difference comes in between us and it, it's kind of a split within Israeli society, uh, but it is fundamentally rooted in certain, you know, uh, Israeli policies is I know that for you and I don't want to assume your stance at all. So you more than welcome once I've, once I've you know, finished the statement to correct me if I'm wrong. I know that for you, what is so important for you is living authentically Jewish with a deep and soft, you know, soft state with a deep rooted connection. And that it's very important for you to live authentically in the ancestral, the ancestral biblical homelands. Okay. But because we've been speaking about a lot of hypotheticals and how we would get to these futures, what essentially what I'm saying is what would happen if the, the Israeli government, along with the Palestinians, followed through on the Israeli policy of the idea that you would be a you, your community and the rest of the communities, which I'm completely on board with you, that they do. There are different ideologies and perspectives. What what is your view essentially on the idea of you being absorbed at a point of the land was divided as a Palestinian citizen living an authentic, deep Jewish life on biblical soil. Because what I'm hearing is that it's not about being um, connected to a nation state at the level that we have, which we can, you know, say is a European nation state with Jewish decorations. Um, it's more about living authentically Jewish for you in the parts where you feel like you're living or I think I think when we met you said something of of the you see yourself as living an authentic Jewish life and being an author of the Jewish destiny or the Jewish future and a, a character yeah, in the story of the Jewish people. A character, a character, yes, that's ex that's exactly that's exactly it. 
if the policy remains, you know, that Israel will divide the land accordingly and says to you, you will therefore be absorbed as a Palestinian citizen, but living an authentically Jewish life and we will support you in every way. And I, by the way, would I would I mean, and I mean this quite genuinely, okay, you know, coming from a family of activists and and people involved in politics and you know being a vocal uh, opposition to any forms of anti-semitism and anti-zionism i would advocate for your rights in that scenario 1000% even more than i would advocate for the rights of jewish communities within the diaspora because i know that it's a precarious situation so what i'm saying is just two prong ideas based off that and I'd just like to kind of get a fundamental understanding. If that was the case, how would you feel about it and how would you go if you were absorbed? Uh, you know, you spoke actually about maybe the identity is Palestinian as a Palestinian citizen, but still living an authentically Jewish life on our ancestral biblical soil um, and being, you know, a character in, you know, the Jewish destiny as so written. Um, and the second one is kind of rooted to it, but but, you know, slightly drifting off it you know if we are attached to this idea of living within the biblical you know the biblical soil and being characters within uh, the future jewish destiny you know we must as well acknowledge that the state of israel was never in any way drawn as part of a biblical framework and if that were the case then we as jews in order to live authentically in in, in that capacity would want to settle in parts of jordan syria and egypt so I suppose the two prong of the question is, is that an end? Is that an end goal? Is that something that you think would be authentic and something that you advocate for settling in other parts of Jordan, Syria and Egypt, where there are very important, you know, uh, things of biblical and historical significance to the Jewish people? And uh, the other one was the first question at which I asked, uh, which has currently, you know, escaped my mind, but I've, I've put it out there and I'll if you if you don't remember the first one, let me know and I'll, I'll get back to it. And you're asking me if I'm willing to live. Yes. Know, live yes. Where I'm living as a Palestinian citizen in a two state framework. Yeah, just so just to add to that, because the Israeli policy is quite clear that once the occupation is ended and there's a willingness from both sides to come to terms that it won't. You know, I don't think that it, it, it's a reality to go back to the 1967 borders. So let me just make that clear. It's just absolutely not a reality. But uh, you know, if Jews had to settle throughout Area A and Area B, which do hold complete significance with places like Shrem, for example, and we're not there right now, then, you know, would you be comfortable being absorbed, uh, living that authentically Jewish life in a Palestinian state with Palestinian citizenship, yet still maintaining that authentic Jewish character that is so important to you? The answer is no. The answer is I wouldn't be done fighting because for me, living an authentic Jewish life in the land of Israel also requires me living in what we can call a Jewish state, me experiencing Jewish political independence in the land. Without that Jewish political independence, I'm not living an authentic Jewish life. So the answer would be okay. no, I wouldn't be done fighting. And I think that's part of the problem with the two-state paradigm, that the Jews most deeply connected to our identity, to our history, uh, to the values of our ancestors, couldn't settle for a two-state reality. We wouldn't be satisfied with it. We wouldn't be done fighting. The conflict would not be over for us.
And by the way, if the international community was trying to take uh, Herzliya or Netanya away from us and trying to force the government of Israel to give up Netanya or Herzliya, I'd probably go move there again as an act of resistance against foreigners trying to take parts of our land away from us. That's how we're coming at this. Sure. To be honest, it's not about Palestinians. Like, I don't want there to be a Palestinian authority here. I don't want there to be UNRWA here. Now, on the one hand, I'm speaking now about my commitment to resisting any partition of our land. Uh, that's one front I'm fighting on and have been fighting on for the last 20 years. But at the same time, you know, I earlier mentioned this like kind of common denominator for the Jews living in the West Bank, that we see what we're doing and how we're living and where we're living as an act of resistance against the international community's efforts to displace us again after having come back in 1967. Um, but it's not the only effective means of resistance. I think there's a second part to it we haven't done yet, and that is reconciling and ultimately uniting with the Palestinians. Meaning if we really want to put uh, the final nail in the coffin of the two-state paradigm that the international community has been pushing really since the 1930s. Um, we absolutely have to find ways to unite with the Palestinians here. Like specifically those Jews who are living in the West Bank, living Jewish history, uh, living our people's aspirations. We need to be the ones to unite with Palestinians in order to create some kind of new political camp that will fight for a better future in the entire land. And that cannot include the Palestinian Authority. And uh, and of course, we want the state of Israel, you know, the government of Israel to behave more justly, especially in regards to minority issues than it does right now. So so I agree. I think that that sounds good. But what what's still confusing me is when you say you want to live in a state with Jewish political independence, okay, but then say you want the Palestinians to live in a state where we maintain political independence in the one state reality, the reality that you don't want to live in because you want to maintain Jewish political independence, you're therefore asking the Palestinians to live in a reality, in a one state reality where they don't have the political independence and national self-determination. So I just don't understand the correlation of that, asking them to do something that we won't give up. Right, because I think that Jewish national identity and Palestinian national identity are extremely different. And I think that Jewish aspirations and Palestinian aspirations are also very different. And this is something I've discovered over the last 13 years of peace work. I'm, I'm a little bit uncomfortable having this conversation without any Palestinians on the show with us, uh, because it, it does feel like Jew-splaining a bit. But in my experience, I can only speak to my experiences for the Jewish people, political independence in our land um, has been a theme of our people's history for thousands of years. Every Jewish wedding, every Yom Kippur, every Pesach Seder, every Brit Milah, every house of mourning, we've reminded ourselves that the goal is a restoration of Jewish political independence in Palestine, in Jerusalem specifically. Like that's something we've told ourselves for thousands of years, and our story will not have a happy ending without Jewish self-determination in our land. In my experience, sure. Palestinian aspirations are different. I think that the nation state is perceived by many Palestinians as a European social construct that could theoretically work and help them achieve 
their interests and their freedom, but there are other models that could work too. Meaning I think that that idea of the nation state is much more core to Jewish national aspirations than to Palestinian aspirations. That's just been my experience. I think for them, there are other issues that are much more central. And by the way, I'm totally fine with certain aspects of Palestinian identity and Palestinian culture being core features of a shared state. Because I don't think they're threatening to us. And one of the reasons why I don't think they're threatening to us is because the way we even define national identity is so different. That's one of the reasons, by the way, why so many Israelis claim there's no such thing as Palestinians, and so many Palestinians have trouble recognizing the existence of a Jewish people. Even if they'll like acknowledge a Jewish religion or something, they, they have trouble acknowledging a Jewish people that's actually from this land. I think in, in many ways, we're just afraid of each other's identities, we're afraid of each other's narratives. And what I've discovered is that if we have the courage to honestly engage with the narrative and the identity of the other, we discover a lot more possibilities for moving forward together than we currently think exist. Sure. I know that a lot of Israeli society, including the parts of Israel that I live in, really see engaging the Palestinian narrative as an act of weakness or betrayal. And I know that many Palestinians also perceive recognizing or engaging with the Jewish national narrative as a sign of weakness or betrayal. But the truth is, I experience it as an expression of strength. First of all, I think it's more true. I think that ultimately, you know, their story is true, our story is true, especially when we talk about ourselves. And, you know, there's a bigger truth that's holistic and inclusive enough to encompass both ostensibly rival truths. And I'm always interested in working towards those bigger truths in life. I think that's part of the adventure of being here in this world is we're constantly discovering and, and coming closer to capital T truth, I guess we can say. And the way to do that is to be inclusive of other people's lowercase truths. And I've discovered that because their national identity and our national identity are so different and our aspirations are really so different, then we can actually both simultaneously win in our respective subjective stories. And there can be one solution here between the river and the sea that is actually victory for them and victory for us. And instead of us being the antagonist in their story and them being the antagonist in our story, we could actually be co-protagonists in the same story, but we just have to do it right. It is complicated. And you know, like I would argue that Palestinian politics are a lot more advanced than Israeli politics. Part of it could just be that the pressure of oppression just forces that. And because we've had power over them for the last few decades, it makes sense that they're more politically dynamic and advanced than we are. We got a little bit lazy. Uh, and I think that kind of Zionism as, an, as a revolutionary ideology ran out of gas. And now Zionism is just like an ideological paradigm in Israeli society. And we need to, and, and that's a lot of what we do with the vision movement is we're trying to create a new Jewish liberation ideology that actually is revolutionary and does move us forward. Uh, but what I've found is that even though they're more politically advanced, which means they're more aware of the negative role a lot of outsiders play, like what you pointed out, whether it's the United Nations, whether it's the United States, whether it's the European Union, you know, there are a lot of foreign actors in our conflict that are exacerbating it, making it worse and perpetuating it. And I would even argue benefiting from it. I think there are a lot of 
like, I mean, the easy example would be American weapons companies. They make a lot of money from our conflict. But even though Palestinians are more aware of that than many Israelis, they're still sensitive to shutting out all of that foreign involvement because the power dynamics don't favor them here. Meaning like if we got rid of all those outside actors who are making our conflict worse to their own benefit, you'd still be left with a very strong Israel fighting a very weak Palestinian population. And, and I agree with you that we do need to shut out a lot of those bad actors, but we need to do it in a way where um, we're building trust with the Palestinians simultaneously. And I think that because the power dynamics favor us to the extent that they do right now, it really is Israel's responsibility to make the first move towards building trust. Meaning eventually it obviously will need to be reciprocal and Palestinians need to earn our trust as well. We don't trust each other, like that's a problem. But because the power dynamics favor us, it's very clear to me that Israel needs to make the first move towards building trust. And also Israel will get to call the shots, at least in the beginning of the process. Like as we're moving forward, you know, because we're coming in with more power, uh, I think we have more responsibility. Uh, you know, we have more of a burden to build real trust and to change the role we play in their story. But ultimately, you know, there will be some some form of leveling out. But yeah, the goal for me, if we really explore both broad narratives, right? Like I said earlier, there are many sub narratives on both sides. But if we really look at the big narratives on both sides, the big Israeli narrative, the big Palestinian narrative, the goal for me is to create a solution here that is simultaneously experienced as a happy ending in both subjective narratives. And that, in my opinion, will be a real Jewish solution because Jewish logic is much more paradoxical than Western logic is, meaning Western logic is very dualistic. Either you're right or I'm right. But Hebrew logic, if you open up the Talmud, you'll find that Hebrew logic is extremely uh, dialectical and extremely paradoxical and creates a lot of space for two ostensibly opposing positions to both be correct. Yes. So I think, uh, you know, in fulfilling the idea behind living with greater purpose and therefore establishing Jewish communities on this biblical soil, right? If that were the case, because I think like what I want to just be clear about is what I'm speaking about right now, right? Like right now in the reality that we're in, you know, the evidence shows me that wherever the IDF aren't around, the communities are not around. But in the idea of in the future, fulfilling the idea behind living this greater purpose, okay, from many people that I've engaged with, parts of that greater purpose or the biblical soil that is important to us in order to fulfill that purpose, okay, like I want to go back to that question of there's important parts of that biblical soil and, and heritage and historical connection that are currently in Jordan, Syria and Egypt. So, you know, my question is, is essentially is that is that, you know, does it stop with A, B and C? Does it continue? Is it building the biblical framework in order to fulfill this greater purpose? And in some ways, OK, and, you know, I, I'm my expertise are in politics, as I've stated, but they're not in the Torah. But in some ways that the idea of that goes against the kind of Talmudic wisdom of if you grab too much, you've essentially grabbed nothing at all. Hmm. So I'm just trying to work out, is that what 
like like how can we say, see ourselves as fulfilling the greater purpose by settling in a b and c okay uh but not settling in jordan syria and parts of egypt okay because what i'm seeing right now in the reality is that wherever the idf aren't around the communities aren't around so you know what's the deal with the jordan syria and egypt thing on fulfilling the greater purpose and and settling on that part of the land okay so a couple things number one i think we have to make a very clear distinction between land that israel already possesses versus land that we don't possess you know there, there are two questions here there's one is it okay to give up land that we already have possession over already have jewish communities existing in um versus do we have an obligation to uh, unilaterally conquer more land i i think that's your question right Yeah, sure, but but what I'm saying is the I I just have to get back to if we're fulfilling this greater purpose and that's what the vision is, then surely parts of Jordan, Syria and Egypt are part of that. First of all, there is no parts of the land of Israel that are in Egypt. You can say that Egypt has control over part of the land of Israel, like the Sinai. Uh I think it was a mistake for us to give it up and eventually we should return to the Sinai. Uh, in terms of anywhere else whether it's places in Jordan or wherever i don't think we can have a real conversation about returning to those lands until we figure out minority rights in the lands we already have like i don't see it as productive on any level to talk about hey wait a minute jordan is uh, is really part of our country we should be there if we still have millions of human beings living under jewish rule unhappy If we create a situation where the non-Jews living under Jewish rule are happy living together with us, we could have real conversations about what territory should or shouldn't be part of the state. But as long as as long as we're in conflict with the non-Jews living under us here, it feels to me like a ridiculous question. Now, I don't know what's going to happen in Jordan because I think the the Hashemite dynasty's days are numbered. So we don't know if we should expect, you know, chaos in the kingdom of Jordan 10 years from now. if it'll become some kind of Palestinian state if it'll become part of Israel i there's no way to really predict right now but i don't expect the hashemite kingdom of jordan to exist in its current form 30 40 50 years from now sure but i just don't see even a conversation about you know jordan syria whatever being productive so long as we haven't figured out a way to live together with the non-jewish population under jewish rule I think that's kind of a prerequisite before we talk about any more land. The Sinai I I have a different perspective on only because the Sinai is practically empty in terms of population. It's not like we'd be ruling over so many more non-Jews. But to really answer your question, I think it comes down to the difference between giving up land we've already taken possession of versus unilaterally initiating a war to conquer more territory. And also just to be clear, I'm not advocating, you know, for a, a war to retake the Sinai, but I'd like to, I'd like to go back, meaning, you know, there's a difference between me saying Israel must declare war and conquer the Sinai and saying I'd like to go back there one day. I'd like it to be Israel again. And I don't know how or when, but I would like it to be Israel again. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's probably where we, you know, where where we differ I suppose I suppose what I'm saying is you know you're saying that it, it it's a loss it's a loss for us because we like willingly gave away something that's ours but 
essentially it wasn't ours pre-56 and that's where i think like this you know this idea of that where we're at post 1967 is in some sort of way like a derivative ideology because it only developed after the military capture of those regions okay uh, you know and uh, we we I, what i'm saying is we know that it's derivative in the sense that the borders of the state of israel were never drawn as part of the biblical framework we captured it post the establishment of the state of israel in 56 from other people that were that did have the control over that land and giving it back was seen as okay well we captured this as part of the situation that we found ourselves in and now we're giving it back on the basis that this will bring some sort of agreement between us which in some ways eventually it leads to with the agreement in uh, uh between egypt and jordan right i mean egypt and israel um so i just think recapturing that and taking it back okay being part of you know uh israel is uh I, I just don't see that as a as a reality unless we're prepared to kind of go back to um a paradigm that's uh post 56 till when the agreement uh was put in place with the egyptians uh first of all you're getting your history a little bit i mean we did conquer the sinai in 56 but gave it back immediately uh, you can see videos of Begin attacking the government for giving up the Sinai in the Menachem Begin Heritage Center in Jerusalem. Correct. We conquered it again in 67. The Sinai is land we had that was taken from us, in my opinion, unjustly. Like, I think it was something that was done to us. You know, I, I blame Begin for being weak. I blame Carter for twisting his arm. I see what happened with Sinai as us being wronged. And uh, but again, like we, I don't think that our return to Sinai will determine whether or not we're able to fulfill our purpose in history. I think that we should always try with what we have to fulfill our purpose as best we can. Sure. But I also notice that you've used the term ancestral homeland a few times in this conversation. So when you say ancestral homeland, what does that mean to you? Is it just like what the UN gives the Jewish people? Is that what? constitutes your ancestral homeland or is there something more to it no i think it's i think it's it's obviously it's obviously deeper uh, deeper than that but uh, it, it, like again I, I go back to that bench analogy i recognize that well the reality of our exile for two thousand years out of this land and while i'm aware that we maintained a constant presence as a minority in the land for the most part up until i think it was like the 1800s where we saw a jewish majority in jerusalem at some point in the 1800s start building that way um I, you know i acknowledge at the end of the day that there there were other people sitting on that bench and uh i'm, I'm trying to walk, work towards a reality where that bench whether it's uh you know whether to to fulfill the 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 identities and the needs and wants for these two people who two peoples who believes that they are both equal claimers to the land at which they are in my opinion uh can live authentically in that and just for me as on a personal level if that means that i don't get it all that i have some and that i will share the rest with someone else I'm okay with that, but that's just me. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. That's just where I stand. I'm okay with that. Jumping off of your bench analogy, there are some people, some Jews in that situation yeah. who return to the bench, see other people on the bench and say, okay, there are other people there. 
I'm just gonna walk away. There are some people who will say, there are other people on that bench, I'm gonna make them leave so I can have my bench back. There are some people who will say, maybe we could divide the bench in half and they'll get some of the bench and I'll get some of the bench. And then there's me who says, I wanna figure out a way to make everybody happy on this bench, them and me. And that's, that's really what I'm trying to aim towards here. I'm trying to find a way to create a solution in this country that allows Palestinians and Jews like me to fully win in the subjective movies we're living in. And that really requires us to unpack the narratives. To, and when I say narrative, I mean something very specific. I mean a collection of facts that are selectively chosen, uh, organized in order to tell a specific kind of story and contextualized within an ideological worldview. I think the Palestinian narrative is for the most part true, especially when they're talking about themselves and their own experiences. I think the Jewish narrative is also true, especially when we're talking about ourselves. I think we both get it wrong when we talk about the other, and that leads us to believe we need to either run away, fight, or cut the bench in half. But I'm convinced, just from my 13 years of experience engaging with Palestinians and working in this field, I'm personally convinced, and I know it sounds crazy to a lot of people, that we can actually create one state between the river and the sea where both of us are living as winners in our respective narratives and living as co-protagonists together in one bigger narrative that's inclusive enough to encompass both ostensibly rival narratives rather than continuing to regard the other as the antagonist in our narrative who just can't be here. And that's the only way I think we can arrive at peace. I think it's not just about finding a solution. I think the mistake that a lot of Zionists make, a lot of our politicians make, a lot of our journalists make, is they're always trying to solve this conflict within the context of the world as it exists right now, within the context of our relationship with the Palestinians as it exists right now. Like, let's be honest, according to the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians right now, no solution can work. Not a two-state solution, not a one-state solution, not the eight-state solution, not the status quo. No solution can work because there's a problem with our relationship. And I think the focus really needs to be on fixing the relationship. And the only way to do that is to actually try to understand the world and history through the eyes of the other, to really understand the experience that the other has been having in both directions. They have to do it too. They have to understand us as well. That's the only way to really fix this relationship. And until we fix the relationship, no solution will work. So I think there's really only one direction. And that is really engaging courageously with the narrative and the identity and the story of the other. Uh, and to try to ultimately create a bigger story in which we can both participate as partners and not as enemies. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not willing to retreat from any of you know, what you called, and I agree, ancestral homeland is a good term. Like I'm not willing to retreat from our ancestral homeland. And if anything, Judea is really the heart of our country. Judea is Israel proper. Netanya and Tel Aviv are greater Israel, but Judea is where we're from. And that's not something I'm willing to compromise on. Sure. Meaning my position is I'm not willing to compromise on what we have. You know, for me, it's uh, I, I am committed to resisting the partition of our country. Uh, yet at the same time, 
uh, it's important that within that country, within those borders that we have, we create the type of society that allows both Jews and Palestinians to really feel their aspirations being met, being realized. And beyond that, I would say we're tasked with creating the type of society that actually sets an example to the rest of humanity, that we need to create new structures. We need to create new systems, whether it's in the area of minority rights, whether it's ways for different formerly warring populations to be able to live together, whether it's the way we structure our economy. Like we came home after 2000 years to create, meaning every time the Jewish people have had power in history, we have benefited human civilization. We've given things to human civilization. Even the concept of a weekend is something that our ancestors gave to humanity. You know, now that we've come back to life after 2000 years, that's part of the shift from what I would call narrow Jewish nationalism to Hebrew universalism. We need to think about what ramifications our coming home has for the rest of humanity. And the truth is this conversation about borders and about whether or not Israel is going to annex, I'm pretty confident that Israel is going to annex because I just don't see any other way forward. I think all conversations that our politicians have about a two-state paradigm are really just a lie. And you, you pointed this out before, that the Palestinians are much better at being straightforward about what they want than Israelis are. And I, I think the two-state solution is a prime example. I, I think the majority of our politicians who talk about a two-state solution don't want one and don't believe it'll ever happen, but they just believe it's like the right thing to say to the international community. Sure. I want to be honest. We're not going to leave. We're going to stay here because Jews like me have spent the last 50 years solidifying Israel's hold on these territories. But the next step is to figure out better relations with the Palestinians. Like that's the way forward. You know, the way back is to talk about going to pre-67 borders or whatever. I'm interested in moving forward. We're not leaving our land, but we do need to make space for the other people that's here. Sure. So, I uh, yeah. Um, so I think that uh, essentially what I want to ask you, because I know that that you're you're a student of this, is the greater purpose that we spoke about like you know you being a, a character as part of this greater purpose which i think is such an interesting way of of explaining it um is that purpose you know because you also said that you know sinai holds some very valuable biblical and historical elements to jewish jewish civilization jewish history and the jewish people if it's in the pursuit of this greater purpose uh, Hebrew universalism, as well as, uh, you know, kind of Rav Cook's uh, ideas as well. Are we able to fulfill or not fulfill that purpose by not being in parts that currently we don't have control over? I think we have to do the best we can fulfilling our purpose in the land that we have. Um, I think we always, whatever generation, have to do the best we can to create the most inspirational revolutionary society in the land that we possess. Sure. So I, I think that everything you've stated, you know, goes back into that idea of that we need to have a national conversation. Yeah. And I think that the, you know, that that the, the structures that were originally put in place right from the Zionist Congress, as I brought up earlier, with this continual debate of what is a Jewish state, which I think is a, a beautiful question and a brilliant conversation to have, needs to be reignited of what is a Jewish state and debated between all the various different ideas. 
and that plays part and parcel with with what you're saying um and i think that you know the only way forward essentially for me is to come to terms with that i'm going to be more comfortable sounding uh, stating what i want even if that makes me sound unreasonable whether it's to the palestinians or whether it's to other jews or whether it's to non-jews living in other countries and i think that i'm going to start listening to the palestinians with what they have to say but from my engagements they've been pretty clear to me and i respect them for that they they've been pretty clear to me on what their on what their views are you know i don't want to get into that because as you said you would prefer to have palestinians here and for us to not not choose blame but i i do think that like this has been a a great conversation that i've enjoyed and thank you very much for having having me on it i think there's definitely a greater national conversation that needs to be had between the different perspectives and the different ideologies and and where either of us are are being productive or unproductive and being obstacles or being uh progresses mm-hmm. I appreciate you coming on and I appreciate you giving as much of your time as you have. We've already gone much much longer than I think either of us anticipated. But it's a great conversation. Yeah, I I think we could probably speak for another 3-4 hours if we if we had to. So, this has been an not just a good conversation, it's an important conversation and I think that there are probably listeners who identify a lot with what you said and where you're coming from and there are listeners who identify especially people who've been listening to me for a while i think one of one of my weaknesses is that to really understand what i'm saying people usually have to listen to me more than once because i'm speaking about a new paradigm i'm speaking about new ways of understanding certain things that many of us think we already understand uh so i'm hoping that those who listen to this episode will really make an effort to to deeply understand both our positions and uh, draw their own conclusions. And uh, in any case, it's been a pleasure. Can you quickly tell our listeners where they can see more of your work? Sure. So, I write uh, multiple columns for different uh, outlets. Some of them are in uh, various Jewish publications in the States as well as in South Africa, as well as I write uh, quite often for the Jerusalem Post and for Newsweek. Uh but you know, the best possible because they're all coming out at different stages throughout the week or throughout the month. the best possible thing would be to follow me on Instagram which is at Samuel Joshua Hyde or Twitter at Samuel J Hyde 11 for some reason my name was taken on Twitter um and I post all my work and uh opinions and columns and analysis uh, there so that's probably the best place to engage with it Okay great and uh, I want to remind listeners once again that if you like what we do here uh support our work go to visionmovement.org or visionmag.org and hit that donate button on the menu bar up top we are 100% listener funded we don't want that to change so your support is important Samuel Hyde thank you so much for being with me on the show I uh, look forward to more conversations maybe we'll get together in Jerusalem sometime soon And for those interested in checking out the show notes, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 73.